Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by our friends at Y Charts. We are doing our show from the Y Charts offices in Chicago, downtown Chicago, right by the river. Great location. They've met us with donuts, which was great. I'm a donut guy. Michael, you know the best donut is? Two donuts. Two donuts. I know those dad tricks. All right. Way ahead of you. All right. It is Tuesday, March 7th, 1020 a.m. What are we looking at, Ben? We're looking at a chart of the S&P 500. Things were going sideways and then boom. That boom is a bit of a stretch, but things went down. What's happening, Ben? So what are you looking at? A daily chart? Intraday. Jerome okay. Powell. You tell me. I'm not paying attention to the markets so today. So what did Jerome Powell say? He said something along the lines of, nothing about the data suggests we have tightened too much. And the market didn't like that. So rather, suggests we have more work to do. We're going to talk about a lot of that and much more. First time home buyers would beg to disagree. Great point. If you want to learn more about Y charts and this wonderful product that Ben and I use all day, every day. That's right. By the way, put a pin in all day, every day. You're going to see that later in the show. Go to YCharts.com, let them know that we sent you, and you'll get 20% off your first subscription. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Alert, alert. Who says that? Is that Josh Allen who says alert, alert? Josh Allen? What do you mean? Football player at the line of scrimmage. I don't know. Are you playing audible here? No. At the line of scrimmage, he says, alert, alert. Okay. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. All right. Anyway, the alert is we are looking for a junior advisor in New York City. Maybe you've heard of it. It's a big city. That's where I live. Well, not true. That's where I work sometimes. If you want to join the team, if you're a young advisor and you want to learn about working with us, please reach out to hiring at ritholtzwealth.com. All right, Ben, we were talking last week and I was asking you, given that interest rates are up so much and all of the uncertainty, I'm impressed. I was impressed with the market's resilience and you encouraged me to write a blog post. And I was asking- It's called teamwork right there. There You were telling me your thoughts and I said, you should write a blog post, call it this. And we did it. So when- Everyone is expecting a recession when people are offsides and expecting one thing and the market's doing something else. I at least think it's worth asking, what is the market maybe seeing that we're getting wrong? I wasn't pounding the table. I'm just saying the market has been resilient. If you look at things like industrials and semiconductors and transports and travel and leisure stocks, given where interest rates are, like the fact that they've risen so much over the past couple of weeks, stocks are hanging in there pretty okay. And then a lot of people are calling me like a permable. like, <laughs> permable? May I ask a question? So the idea was, okay, rates are much higher. Stocks should be down. And you're looking at the numbers and saying, actually, the cyclical stuff that you would expect to get hammered the most is holding up really well. If we were going to go into a recession, and listen, I'm not saying the market is always right. There's plenty of times where it's wrong. But- Industrial stocks have literally the highest correlation to economic activity. And you have XLI right near a 52 week I have maybe a dumb question. I see this all the time. Transports are breaking out. What are the transport stocks? UPS, FedEx, KSU, the railroad stocks. 
things that move goods around our You could almost call Amazon a transport country. stock. Sure. Yeah. They got their own vans now. And trucks. So I looked at we first went into a bear market in June. And if you look at the chart, you'll remember we had a massive spike in interest rates. The two year went from two point eight to three point four percent in two days. Massive move. And at the time, the Fed funds rates had a target range of 75 to 100 basis points. So two-year, 3.3%. Fed funds rates, 75 to 100 basis points. Where's the Fed fund target rate now? Is it 475 to 500 or 450 to 475? Yeah. Which one? Almost five. Okay. And the two-year is, where's the two-year? Close to five? Trying to look it up right now. And the market is higher today than it was then. Sorry, I can't. What the heck? Hang on. Ben, allow me. The two-year is at 4.9. Oh, the two-year is breaking out again. 4.96%. Not necessarily surprising given Powell's remarks earlier. So I'm just asking the question. You have small caps acting better. What are your thoughts? My one thing I've been thinking a lot is that the markets are rarely as easy as if A happens, then B will be sure to follow. It makes sense in theory. And I wrote a blog post about this a couple weeks ago, I think, saying that higher short-term rates like this or rising short-term rates haven't been as bad as you think. And I think that's one of the confusing parts about just following the financial markets in the short term is that sometimes the relationships don't make a lot of sense. Sometimes they do. Obviously, I guess if Powell's saying something, maybe the market's going to react because all the algorithms hear it. But I think this is why it's so hard to predict the market over the short term. Are you missing a popper thing on your mic? Well, I didn't want it to get all... What is it for, honestly? It's for the anti-popping. Okay. I didn't want to put it in my backpack and have it get all scrunched up and be weird looking. Okay. So I took it off. So what were we saying? <laughs> How many have we done live in person together? I feel like we've done a few of them in recent months. 10? It's always a little different. It's easier sometimes just seeing you on a screen. I think we mentioned it. We're in Chicago for a few days. We're meeting with clients. We're meeting with prospects. We're meeting with advisors. We're eating pretty good food. We're walking around the city. And it's a great city. Great city. One of my favorite cities. This is not a scorching hot take. I was in Scottsdale last week. And the location the geographic location of a city has a massive impact on the DNA of its residents. For example, and I'm not judging, I'm just saying this is just a fact. I grabbed breakfast. There was like a breakfast place. I stayed near like the Kierland something or the other in Scottsdale. And there was a breakfast sandwich place. It was kind of like a diner. And it was full of people. And not retired people or not older people. It was just filled with people at like 9.45 in the morning. And what are you trying to figure out? Why aren't these people working? Yeah, more or less. In Chicago, I went for a walk earlier this morning. I was probably on the road at 7.15, just strolling around, taking in the city. People everywhere. Worker bees. Was it 7.15 Eastern time or 7.15 Central? Oh, because... don't get me started. Actually, let's do this right now. So maybe there does exist an option. Somebody email me if you know that this option exists. If I am in Chicago and I'm an hour behind my normal time, but then I'm preparing for an invite out to somebody who's on West Coast time, but I have to make sure that I know that I'm going to be in East Coast time. Because right now, what I'm getting at is your Google Calendar moves with your time zone, which in certain ways makes sense. It makes sense if you're in the, on the day of the meetings. That makes sense. But we, if you're trying to plan a future meeting, we were off. We were setting up for the podcast and Duncan slacked us an hour before we were supposed to start saying, hey, guys, I'm ready whenever you are. And we said, no, it's in an hour. And you said, my idea. I don't think there's a big market for this idea. I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe AI can figure it out for you. Do you want to do this now? What happened yesterday or do you want to save it for later? 
let's just tease it. We had another Karen Batnick moment <laughs> last night, and they're happening on more and more frequency. I just want to say, I've known you for almost a decade, and I have never seen you so mad as you were last night. Let's get into some more market stuff. I'm and still, then- you know, I'm still, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still annoyed. Okay, fine. We'll come back to that. So a few weeks ago, we learned about these things called zero days to expiration options, where they literally are issued and expire, I guess, a couple hours later. So Goldman has this chart looking at the distribution of S&P 500 notional volume by maturity for options. And under 24 hours, look at this. This has to be impacting the market in some way, which is way above my pay grade. But don't you think? That is a pretty good chart. With all like the gamma stuff. Well, who's trading these? Is this High frequency traders. Okay. But it's I, like, I, think, it can't, I don't know. It can't all know. be retail traders, right? I doubt it. Okay. By the way, I just want to get back to your bearish thing that everyone is bearish. And it does seem like everyone is bearish. You should have seen the comments to me. It's like, I know what the comments are. Not unexpected, but I'm merely asking the question. We're only a little more than two months into the year. The S&P is actually up almost 5% still for the year. 4%. I say that now, and by the time this airs, market's going to drop 5% or something. But you're right. It's very resilient. And I think people just want to see the crash. A lot of people. I want to see like total washout, and then start over. And I don't think that's going to happen. I understand people thinking a recession is inevitable, given what the Fed is trying to do. They're being very transparent about their seriousness in which they're taking inflation. I understand, like, don't fight the Fed. I do. There's no butt coming. I just, I get it. Fed Woj had a piece yesterday for the Wall Street Journal. And the quote from someone in the piece was basically, for the last 18 months, a recession has been six months away. And then it doesn't happen. And then it's six months away. And then it's six months away. And I'm sticking to our guns here that we made at the beginning of the year with our Derek Thompson podcast that if there's no recession this year, people are just going to push that back and say, okay, 2024 then. All right. We haven't spoken about ARC in a while. Ben Johnson has this really badass chart looking at the trailing 20-day flows since inception. And of course, we know it went vertical into 2020 and 2021. And it's been shopping around. But it looks like it's been mostly negative now. With the caveat that, again, we're only two months and change into the year. You know what I'm doing right now? I'm going on to Y charts to look at the total assets. I'm on Y charts. Okay. What is ARC's return this year, if you had to guess? 26%. That's pretty good. It's up 28.5% or 25.8%. You were basically right on. Not to brag. You had that on your screen over there? I have total assets under management on my screen. Okay. What, it was down 80%, so I guess that makes sense, but not bad. So Einhorn was on CNBC. I did not watch the interview. Okay. I've been trying to teach my children because, you know, kids, little kids just have no filter. They'll say anything about anyone, appearance, anything. Chris Rock made this point on his new special. Did your kids say something? No, but uh, I'm trying to, especially my younger, trying to drill into them. Like, you don't talk about other people's appearances. And The other day, I took Kobe to a friend's house, and he said they have a small house. And of course, yes, of course, there was nothing malicious about it. That kind of thing. I took him by the shoulders, and I said, Kobe... You never, ever say that. And of course, he didn't really exactly understand why I was, I reacted the way that I did. Okay. Having said that. <laughs> okay. As a billionaire, does David Einhorn have the worst haircut for a billionaire? I didn't see it. I'm not one to talk. But what, what happened? No, he's just his- Oh, his, just in general? He just has kind of like a bowl cut. It looks kind of like the Beatles a little bit. It doesn't seem like a billionaire. Maybe, hey, he's a value investor. Maybe he goes what to great clubs. What does having a filter? I'm saying kids make that type of comment and I'm making it. I'm being a hypocrite you, right now. You try, you try to shoehorn the kids thing in there. No, I'm, I'm saying I'm being a hypocrite. Okay. Jeez. 
you spent 10 minutes on the podcast two weeks ago telling me about your Saturday. Went to Bed Bath & Beyond. I'm a big dump guy. But anyway. Went to the dump this weekend. Okay, so I, Kelly Evans from CNBC had this, and, and she summarized, and he said... He's basically talking about index funds again. He said, there's a really good theory a long time ago that you can get the index return, you can save on taxes, save on transaction costs. People got bored of a lot of money moved. And he basically says, there's fewer investors doing the hard work to set prices for the stocks. And as a result, money's flowed in index investing and mega cap tech over the past decade. Not untrue. Of all the risks in the market that hedge funders have to worry about, why do they always talk about index funds so much? Is it because of they're sick of being compared to the S&P 500? I just Wait, don't get on. why. This, this is an important quote. He said, most people either cannot do valuation, they choose not to do valuation. By the way, according to my resume, I know how to properly value securities. That's true. Or their valuation is structurally agnostic. That leaves us, I don't want to say alone, but with less competition than 10 or 15 years ago. And the implication for the rest of us is that the market for many stocks may also be less efficient now than it was in the past. Okay, time out. Is he saying that in the past, markets were more efficient, but he was able to accurately find mispricings and then when they efficiently converged on his views he made money i don't even understand if markets are less efficient now shouldn't that make it good for him it should be is that what he's saying that things are good for him now i don't even, i don't I, understand i think that's kind of what he's saying but i never liked this argument of this changes the way that people valuations and guess what regardless of how many people own index funds, the people who are actively trading are still going to be setting the prices and the market is what the collective actions of all investors are that's it. This argument just doesn't make sense to me. I don't know why. Again, I think it's probably because they get compared to the S&P so often and they're sick of it. I just don't understand it. It's not a risk that should matter. It's way, way, way down the list in terms of things I'm worried about. So this is a great chart from Lizanne Saunders. The market's expectations of probability of a 50 basis point rate hike at the March meeting went from 0% at the beginning of February to 29% at the beginning of March. So again, you have not just expectations for rate hikes, increasing size rate hikes going up. You have actual interest rates moving up a lot. I'm not trying to beat a dead horse, but and yet the market hasn't responded. The craziest thing to me is that it was in March of last year that the Fed first started raising rates. It's been a, a year. And so rewind a year and tell you and I then, who, to be fair, we both said it's going to be hard to raise rates very high because there's a lot of problems it can cause. It hasn't caused nearly as many problems as I would have thought. Hand up. If you would have said... The Fed is going to raise to five, well, five and a half percent in a year. There was a time not too long ago where you felt the Fed was going to break something. I can't believe that they have. I mean, they, well, they, the, the they, did, they did kind of break the housing market. No, they absolutely did. Yeah. It's the, frozen. But it hasn't like led to any other problems yet. Well, here's and maybe it will. But it's surprising to me that they raised so aggressively and nothing really bad in the economy has happened yet. Here's a question. Is the idea, this overly simplistic idea that banks borrow short and lend long and therefore banking activity, lending activity grunts to a halt when the yield curve is inverted. I'm sure there are people that know better than we do about what lending activity has been like in this environment. Is that a myth or is that? I think that there's a big difference between interest rate levels and access to credit. And that's probably what people miss. Interest rates were much higher in the housing bubble of the early 2000s, but credit was super easy to get. Remember you in the big short about the strawberry picker who made 14 grand and he got a $600,000 mortgage. So that, I think maybe that is the thing where it's not quite as easy to get a loan these days. Oh, banks borrowing short. What do they pay on the checking deposit? Nothing. Banks are still doing fine. They're earning plenty of spread right now. Okay. Maybe this is answering some of our questions. For MasterCard CFO in the state of the consumer, we continue to see what is a remarkably resilient consumer. 
our business model continues to be a nominal spend business model, which is a combination of real spending and inflation. So they're saying people are still spending plenty of money. Everything's doing pretty good. The New York Times had a piece and the author talked about how they kind of became addicted to spending during the pandemic. And the headline is, I spent two years revenge spending. It was hard to stop. I do think there's something to this where you develop some certain habits. And I'm not a big personal finance spend shame person. There's some people in the personal finance world who just get mad at you for spending money on anything. I like spending money personally on certain things or certain things I do not like spending money on. Expensive tequila drinks, for instance. But there are certain things that I enjoy spending money on and people say, oh, it's just the dopamine hit or whatever. And I enjoy it. They talk about the dopamine hit stuff in here. How about this? You know what I love spending money on? The thing that I love spending money on the most, which I don't know that I necessarily got shamed for, but there was a few people, I get it. I pay somebody to fold my laundry. It's, it's money well spent, it, right? It's the absolute best money that I spend. It is a life changer. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but it is. Why am I sharing this? Just so there are things that are worth spending money on? Yes. I can also see how these habits develop. We keep asking, inflation is happening. Why aren't people changing their behavior? I think it's hard to change well, oh, that so, behavior. So maybe the point is that luxuries, having somebody fold your clothes and put them away for you, luxuries become baseline very quickly. I used to mow my own lawn and it would take like an hour. My old house, we had a much bigger lawn. And then we had kids and it was hard. And I paid someone and I said, I'm going to pay someone for the summer. And when the kids get older, I'll start mowing the lawn again. I still pay someone to do the lawn for me. And it's great because I'm paying for time. I'm just saying it's okay to not be spend shamed for everything. That's the hard part though. Some people take it too far and they get addicted to it. And it is just the psychology thing. So anyway. You do like to spend shame people in cars. We're going to get to that in a minute. Yes. But I, <laughs> I don't want people complaining about gas prices and their monthly payment for a car when you're spending 80 or 90 grand on a car. True. We had economic data from China. Their manufacturing rose to the highest level since April 2012. I thought we didn't trust any economic data from China. Uh, European stocks. You look at the DAX or the CAC recently. I think the CAC is at an all-time high. The DAX is not far behind. I've never heard you talk about the CAC before. It's the French market. I know, but you sent me a chart the other day. How long was it the last year? That was six months. Six months? Okay. Foreign stocks are just crushing US, right? Europe in particular, yes. which a lot of people were calling uninvestable. Because whatever happened to their recession? That was the layup. Everyone predicted a US recession. I guess it was just natural gas prices. Some more layoffs this week. General Motors. Wait, General Motors is not in Michigan, is it? It's in Detroit, yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah. I knew Ford was. Yeah, oh, Ford brain fart. Chrysler was the other part of the big three. You know any General Motors employees live around you? No, it's on the other side of the state. Okay. Facebook is doing more layoffs? How many? Thousands. They didn't get percentage? No. All right. From the Wall Street Journal. This is rich session in chart form. Bars, hotels, and restaurants become the economy's fastest growing employers. Look at this chart of leisure and hospitality and then technology information since the start of 2022. Leisure and hospitality continues to go up. Information is rolling over and falling. That's the rich session right there. So Hyatt hotels, all-time high. The airlines were acting very well, the casinos. When I was on my flight home from Phoenix, by the way, what a new whale move I pulled. I forgot to select my seat and I was in the second to last row in the middle. But I got lucky because there was nobody sitting next to me. So I ended up moving into the window. Okay. Middle seat's tough. Middle seat's rough. You know, this whole thing, this is not necessarily a meme, but you could tell a lot from somebody by how they treat a waiter or what they do with their grocery <laughs> cart. I'm thinking about last night. <laughs> Basically, how people behave when no one is watching, like is a good barometer. So 
don't know if this is exactly in that bucket, but if you put your seat back, I guess nobody's technically watching you. Well, maybe the person behind you is. All right, bad example. No, what I'm saying is, if you put your seat back, that's a fairly good barometer of what type of character somebody has. Who puts their seat back on a plane? It was outrageous. This lady, I could smell her hair. That's how close she was. Is that so rude? I'm not a fan. I know it's of, an option. I'm not a fan of people putting it back. Here's what I don't like when they do this. And just constantly move it back more and push it. I don't know. It doesn't bother me. All right, so let's Wait, get hold, it. hang on. I was very, come on. I want to get into your Karen Baddick moments as we're talking about Legion Hospitality. So, the greatest thing ever because like a month ago, or two months ago, whatever, we were in Houston, and you said, I never complain, and you talked about sending a salad back or something, and then we had a drink issue. Let's remind the listeners. I asked for Casamigos on the Rocks. She gave me and Josh Classe Azul, and she gave you, whoever else ordered Marg's, she put Classe Azul in the margaritas, which I didn't ask for, and I didn't order. It was fair. And so I got like, I don't know how many I ordered. It was maybe five drinks for like 200 something dollars. So- It was ridiculous. I paid for it. And then I said, hey, I just FYI, I did not ask for classes. Yeah, you and you were very level-headed. So let me tell the story from my perspective last night. Wait, let me just say one thing. And then you can tell your story. Friend of the show, Phil Huber, who was with us when I said something about the steak. That's right, you complained about steaks too. Phil said, try not to send back any steaks while you're here. So I said, not quite a steak, but a drink. He said, you didn't. So, all right, Ben, go ahead. So we're staying at a nice hotel in the West Loop. It's called the Hoxton. Hoxton Hotel. We're staying at the Hoxton Hotel. And we go to meet a friend who lives in Chicago. Which, Hoxton is a lovely hotel, except for my awful experience. I will never, ever stay there again. So me, you and, you, me and you and Josh and Graham are all having a drink. And you get the bill. We have to go because we have dinner plans. And you look at the bill and your jaw dropped. And I swear you didn't say anything. You just said, this bill, oh my gosh. And you looked at it for 30 seconds. And I kept looking at you being like, what? I thought you were going to say... This is so much cheaper than New York. I I'm thought getting, that's, I'm getting angry again. I thought that's what you were going to say. And you look at it and you say, guys, look at this. By the way, I am not an angry person. I don't yell. I'm not a yeller. And I didn't yell last night. But my blood pressure doesn't generally rise because I'm angry. I've never seen you this angry. You were perplexed. So you look at this drink and it was a, Josh had gotten two tequilas on the rocks. And they were $86 a drink. And the problem was Josh asked for a certain type of tequila. And they said, we don't have any of those. All we have is this. And it was the Casa Azul. Casa Azul. Top shelf one. Which, oh, it's not their fault. I'm a huge fan of the drink. Which you said is like a $150 bottle. And they charged him $86 for a drink. And it was, what, an ounce and a half of tequila, maybe. And you talked to the waitress. She said, let me get my manager. Honestly, $86. It's offensive. It's so egregious. And the, the best move was the manager came to talk to you. He stood his ground and he said, the price is on the menu. And he wouldn't give it back. And that the was- The price was not on the menu. No way. I'm not 100% sure, but I feel like- Fine, go on, keep going. And you like even brought him over to the side to talk to him. And I just laughed because that was the difference between a Midwestern person like me and a New Yorker. I would have sworn under my breath and I would have signed a check and I would have said, I can't believe it. I just paid that for a drink. And you talked to the manager and then Josh was sitting there for 30 seconds saying, I got to get in on this. And you guys both went and- I mean, I still will say credit to him. He stood his ground, but he was abrasive. <laughs> I said, people pay 86. His attitude was like, what? I said, it's $86 for a drink. He goes, people pay that all day, every day. He goes, people come in here, they spend $700. He was like getting mad at us. And I'm like, dude, this is nuts. This is egregious. You should have told us. And I understand that a waiter is never going to be like, hey, this is an expensive drink because they don't want to be presumptuous. But come on, 
I've had that drink in the past, and I think like fifty dollars is a lot for a pour. Eighty six was gross. Shame I've never on you. I've never seen Austin a hotel. I've never seen a drink that much before. I'm a little surprised. Usually, there's some wiggle room there where you could say, you know what? Okay, we're gonna take one of those off your bill. I thought for sure that was gonna happen, and I was a little surprised they didn't. But yes, I wouldn't have said something, but I do understand why you did. And regardless, it was funny. We got a good story did out of it. Did it feel funny? <laughs> you were you were hot. Yeah, I still am. $86 for a drink is crazy. But again, I would have never said anything. You know, Duncan, throw this in on the YouTube channel. Like, if you get an $86 drink, yes or no, do you say something to the waiter? I feel like that's reasonable. I didn't realize, too, that it was two drinks. So it was, we're talking, I mean, at that point, Jerome Powell needs to raise that restaurant's interest well, rate. Well, because I saw the toll and I'm like, wait, what? Yes. All right. <laughs> we help the economy out. We're keeping... Consumer spending going. All right, so there's a wild story about Silvergate Bank. What is Silvergate Bank doing now? Are they basically out of business? I haven't been following this. Well, the stock fell 50-some-odd percent the other day, and Coinbase put out a statement. So basically, Silvergate, I don't know that they're like the only legitimate bank in crypto, actual regulated bank that deals with crypto customers. I kind of feel like they are, but I'm not 100% sure. Coinbase put out a tweet, at Coinbase, all client funds continue to be safe, accessible, and available. In light of recent developments and out of an abundance of caution, Coinbase is no longer accepting or initiating payments to or from Silvergate. So Silvergate had a market cap at its peak of $5.9 billion, and now it is less than $200 million. We spoke about this a few weeks ago. Mark Rubenstein at his fantastic Substack and interest wrote, for a while, it looked like the bank had averted disaster. Quote, I want to just say congratulations. An analyst remarked on a call the bank hosted for investors at the beginning of January. Quote, I don't think that there are that many banks that could stomach a 70% decline in deposits and come out of it with no operational liquidity issues. So I do think that bears acknowledgement. End quote. Right? We spoke about that. But then here's what happened. This is Mark. But neither the analyst nor company management anticipated the risk that the federal home loan bank would ask for its money back. This week, Silvergate revealed that the bank had done just that, forcing it to sell further securities to make the repayment. The FAHB, and we spoke about this, why are they making loans to Silvergate? But they made a substantial loan. They asked for the money back in the bank. The shares collapsed. Coindesk said, a traditional regulated depository institution can't make it without a deposit base, and Silvergate's coffers were drawn down quickly as major crypto clients deal with their own collapses, bankruptcies, and legal disputes that require an instant vacuuming of their liquid cash last year. This is the implication, sorry. The options for you, the U.S. banking are getting narrower. The Federal Reserve and other banking agencies warn they don't want the lenders they oversee getting overly exposed to the digital asset sector. So what does this mean for crypto? That it's going to have to be a traditional financial institution to make this happen. It's not going to be a new place coming along. But if you're about to say fidelity for custody, I'm not talking about custody. I'm talking about banking relationships. I know. I'm saying, and it's like going to have to be Goldman Sachs or JP Moore. It's Maybe trust comes back someday, but isn't that the only way it happens is if one of these big places says, we're going to do this? Coinbase has to have other banking partners, no? I have no idea. I'm looking at this chart. You said it went to a high of $5.9 billion market cap, and that's in November 2021. I think that's when most of like the bigger tech stuff topped out, and that's when like crypto topped out, I think, at one point. It was 2020 and 2021 the biggest paper gains and then paper losses in history in terms of like the speed at which Dollar it occurred? Amount? I mean, obviously, the dollar amount is bigger, but the speed at which people got really wealthy on paper and then lost that wealth, that has to be one of the fastest times in history for that. Because the internet bubble took a few years to build up, and I know that those things crashed too, but I just can't imagine how many people thought that they were set for life and lost it all. Are you seeing any new listings in your neighborhood? Houses? No. Yeah, same. 
No, I mean, if you pull up the Zillow in the area, there's nothing. And companies in my neighborhood, like I'm looking at the map right now. Jeez, there's nothing. All right, let's get into companies real estate. That mi- housing developers that missed their window that built towards the tail end of middle of 22 that like just finished that were listing for a million. They are screwed. One, of one the- house that's been listed for a million for eight months. It's never getting sold for a million. One, of the, close. one of the parks by us where our kids play soccer and stuff across the street, there was a big horse farm and the horse farm sold and they cleared it all out and they're going to put like 40 high end million dollar and up houses. Right now there's one. You're right. They missed their window. So, I'm looking at this one house in my neighborhood for $1.4 million, which is, there's not legitimately $1.4 million houses in my neighborhood. Maybe a few on the water, but not this one. And this has been on the market for 224 days. Did you figure out who your new neighbor is yet for the one that sold across I don't the street? Know, I don't know that it's sold. I'm not okay. sure what's going All right, on. Right. So this chart was making the rounds last week on social media. This is from Goldman Sachs. 99% of outstanding mortgages have interest rates below the current rate. And this is for 30 years. Obviously, we've been talking a lot about this, but it shows the distribution of rates. Really good chart. It's funny, the highest rate is right at 3%. And this explains a lot. Can you skip a few charts? Look at the chart. Most US mortgages are pandemic mortgages. Did you see this one? Yes. This shows the share of US mortgage by vintage. It looks like between 2020, 2021, and 2022, that's 50%. So that oh, was it says more than half. More than half have been originated since 2020 or after. Because everyone so the, refinanced. The, pan- the pandemic changed everything. Yes. It forced interest rates to zero. It forced people out of the city. Look at this other one from Redfin. It talks about typical U.S. homeowner spends 12.3 years in their home. In 2005, it was six and a half years. And look at this next one by age. This oh, wait, number- why do you think it is? Because starter homes are not a thing anymore? <sighs> that could be part of it. What else would it be? Well, also, in, is that 2005, people were flipping houses? Now I think that, yeah, that could be part of it. But it fell a little bit, but it's risen almost every year. I think it's probably to the housing collapse, the people who held onto their houses, that lower prices, didn't want to sell into a bad market. But look at this tenure. They do it by under 35, 35 to 64, and 65 and older. 35% of people 65 and older have lived in their home 33 years or more. 19% lived at 23 to 32 years. My parents moved into the house they're in now in 1991, 1992, and have been in it ever since. Do you think that this will hold, because it shows people under 35 45% of them are three years or less. Do you think young people have more fickle taste and will move more? No. Moving sucks. It does. Doesn't that number 33 years or more? Nobody's moving now. Well, right. My uncle, who actually did just move out of his house, lived in his house in my town for 40 something years. And he would joke during the pandemic when people were asking him if he wanted to sell his house. Because remember when brokers would just drive around and ask if you want to sell your house? That was a real thing. His answer would be, Move. I'm just getting settled in. <laughs> but I can see wanting to stay in my house because of the mortgage rate. But couldn't you see in, I don't know, five or 10 years getting the itchy trigger finger to just try to move somewhere else? Or could you see yourself living in your house for 30 years? Do you think that's a possibility? That is a weird thing to think about. My brain doesn't work that way. My parents have been in their house for as this number, 33 well, do you years, think I think. That what do you think your parents would have said 30 years ago? They probably would have said, who knows? Probably not. Sounds like a long time. My brother and I were joking the other day, they've probably spent more on upgrades in the house than they bought it for. New roof, new windows, new deck, all that stuff, more than it was when they bought it in the 1990s. All right, Colin Roche had a chart of the week, and he goes back to 2000, and he compares US home prices to rents in the US. That was funny. He had a chart of the week. Yeah, like your forecast of the week, your prediction of the week. We haven't gotten one in a while from you. Come on, put it out there. Actually- Analysts who predicted, what was your big prediction? That you got in market watch oh, for? Oh, the market would drop 10% last year. Oh, yeah. And that 
Bezos All right, let, me guys, let me turn this on you. So when I was in Scottsdale, went out to dinner with friends, and they were like, I know you don't like talking stocks, but just, just, let's just have some fun. What stock would you pick? If you had to pick one stock that would quintuple, I think he said four or five X over the next 10 years. What is that as like an annual return? 20 What's something? What's the rule of 72? Okay. I don't know. Uh, a lot? A lot, yeah. Nothing immediately came to mind because at that point, you're thinking of a, of a company who's got a market cap that could go from 100 to 500 or 20 to 100. I don't know enough small cap stocks. I pick a small cap is what I would do. Right, because how would I pick a stock? How would I know which stock that's already 100 billion to go to 500? So it was an interesting exercise. Is Casa Azul a publicly traded company? I'll buy if they're charging $86 a drink. You know what I found out is a publicly traded company this week because I saw it on quarter's upcoming earnings this week. Am I making this up? Hugo Boss? That makes sense. No. You were definitely a Hugo Boss guy. No. No? Maybe if you shopped at Macy's, you'd buy Hugo Boss, but... Let's see. Oh, the ticker is... Wait, Hugo Boss is... Oh, I guess it makes sense. It's a foreign company. Okay. I guess... You know the Don Draper meme? I don't think about you at all. Sorry, I don't think about Hugo Boss. <laughs> all right. So the difference between home prices and rents got to like 50% in the housing bubble of the early 2000s. Then it went from 15% in 2020 to 40% now. And Cullen's whole thing is basically housing prices have to come down because affordability is so bad, something we've been talking about. And he thinks that it just takes a while. And I think part of it is like the endowment effect of... I own this home, so I think it's worth more. Like you could look at the house down the street and go, those people are nuts. They think you're going to get that. But you look at your own home price and you go, no, I think our house is still pretty high. It's like the endowment effect thing. But my question is looking at this chart, shouldn't home ownership offer some sort of premium to rents? Like why should they grow together? Shouldn't taking on the risk, taking on the upkeep, taking on the insurance, the taxes, the maintenance, all that stuff. I guess you can make the counterpoint is that home ownership is so expensive that maybe it should trade at a discount to rent. Don't you think being a homeowner is a way bigger risk than being a renter in certain instances? And therefore, it should trade at a discount. I'm saying that's why it trades at a premium. I, I think if it's prob- riskier, it should trade at a discount. It's kind of the idea of why do stocks earn a higher return than bonds? Because they're riskier. So they should have a higher return. That's why housing should have a higher return than rent. And therefore, it should trade at a discount. That's like saying stocks should trade at a discount to bonds in terms of returns. If it's riskier, it should not trade at a discount. Well, it should they, pre- they should. Stocks tr- it should, should give you a premium return. That's what I'm saying. So I'm saying it doesn't make sense that housing prices are growing at 40% more than rents, but I think it makes sense that there should be a premium and housing prices should grow faster well, than rents. I mentioned, Duncan, to drop this in the YouTube, whether you would say something about a 90... You know what? Let's guess. What do you think the audience is going to say? I feel like 70% of the audience will say, yes, I will say something. About what? Oh, to the manager? Yeah. I would love to see it by geography. That's a good one. Probably 95% of New Yorkers. It was... A culture shock to me being a Midwesterner and how everyone is so quiet and calm to the first time I'm in the office and you guys are just shouting at each other from <laughs> office to office, yelling, and then two <laughs> minutes later, like laughing and like nothing happened. <laughs> I think that certain parts of the country have. Utah. Yeah, we, I've had a lot of people say, like, are you and John, like, do you like not like each other? Because right. we sort of go back and forth on what are your thoughts? It's like, this is how we express I feel like love. People in New- Maybe you just have to, but like, people in New York enjoy confrontation more. Probably because you had to. It's like evolution. If you're going to live in a city with 8 million people, you have to have confrontation every once in a while. Yeah, I would not say that I enjoy confrontation. I would strongly prefer not to have done that last I should have. I but I couldn't help it. videotaped it. It was just... You know the meme of like the guy talking to the girl, like mansplaining something? You know that meme? Yes. If you could have just seen me just with no <laughs> volume. <laughs> anyway, Duncan dropped a survey in last week. Well, because we were talking about the earnings yield versus the interest on either the six month or one year, whatever we're looking at. 
Will 5% T-bills change how you invest? 57% of people said yes. But do you think that- Guess what? That makes sense. The thing, I know it's all one bucket and it's mental accounting, but don't you view cash as separate from your portfolio? Like I view investing and then cash as two different things. Like I know that you could change your stock allocation and buy T-bills, but I look at it for me, it's like I'm just getting a way better yield on my cash. I'm like a barbell portfolio kind of guy. But you're not saying anything different. For me, I separate it out. I'm not changing my asset allocation because of this. I'm changing yes, my cash allocation. Yes, you cash. Cash is an asset. I'm not saying I'm holding more cash. Oh, you're not? No. Are you? Yes. You're holding more cash because T-bills are high. So here's the other argument that I've heard from a lot of people. Okay, great. T-bills are 5%. Inflation is 6 I'm an nominal guy. There, I said it. But most people <laughs> are until they want to make a different... But wait, it's not impacting my 401k, obviously. So my 401k automated purchases, it's not impacting that. My Betterment accounts, it's not impacting that. My automated investing is not being impacted by here's, here's the problem with trying to time the market and be, and I, for retirees, I totally understand putting more money in T-bills. But if you're a young person and you're trying to time the market because T-bill yields are 5%, guess what? Yeah, I'm not doing that. Stocks are going to go up a lot before T-bill yields come down. So if you're trying to like, I'm going to hold T-bill yields and then I'll buy stock, like the stock market is going to take off in preparation for T-bill yields going down is the way I'm thinking of it. Absolutely. So trying to time that out. I've got something. I've got another story. This is from car dealership guy. This is nuts. Car payments have hit record highs. Nearly 15% of drivers who financed a new vehicle toward the end of 2022 are paying $1,000 a month. See? That's nuts. Imagine paying, I mean, I'm sure you can imagine, $12,000 a year post-tax Plus think about car. all the upkeep and maintenance on a car with that much of a payment. But I don't want to say it's nuts. I'm not trying to shame anybody. But I'm just saying the fact that 15% of drivers. That's a lot. My whole thing on spend shaming is it's okay to spend shame if you're spending this much money and you're not saving. If you're saving money and you have your kids 529 taken yeah. care of and you got your IRA maxed out and you're putting money aside in your 401k and you want to do a $1,000 car payment, have at it. I looked at my kids 529 balances the other day. I'm not sure why. I was like, oh, I wonder how much money's in there. There's a lot of money in there. I looked at mine too for my kid. I started the day that they were born, all of them pretty much. So I was a little late with Kobe, but he already has $30,000. It just adds up. It does. It's nice, right? It's out of sight, out of mind. Every month, money goes in when he gets presents. Some of it goes there. I have a better account for them. But it is really amazing. Not having looked in like five years and open up, it's like, whoa. It's nice, right? That'll pay for like half a semester. Not bad. But here's the thing. So if you're paying $1,000 a month for a car and you're saying inflation is killing me, I can't save any money, then I have a problem with your spending habits. How's that? Fine. All right. So my wife drives an Audi SUV. So are you going to shame me? Just how you say it. Is it Audi or Audi? I mean, I say Audi. I know you say Audi. I don't know who might have to do a survey on this one too. All right. We bought her car because her lease was up six, I don't know, a year ago. You got a good deal on it, right? We had a good deal. The monthly payments went down by 200, but I bought a warranty, which made it go up by 100. So I saved $100 a month by buying the car. Warranties are for suckers. Oh, contraire, <laughs> my friend. It worked? I'm so glad you said that. In my mind, and Robin was shocked that I did it because it's a German car. I own it. So I said, all right, yeah. I mean, I didn't really think, I did think hard about it, but I said, no. Oh, I'll do it because I will regret not doing it. Well, she called me last week and she goes, I'm picking Kobe up and the car just died. I like slowly 
move to the side of the road. So we took it to Audi. They had to like go through their warranty insurance claim process. The transmission died. Ooh. The transmission was $8,000. And your warranty picked it up? My warranty picked it up. How does a transmission die of a car that's three or four years old? I would assume that would happen to like a 15-year-old car. It has like 60,000 miles, I think. But anyway, it's not nuts. So now we're driving the A5. And I'm used to driving. I drive a Jeep. So I'm used to being up. I feel like I'm getting in and I'm sitting on the ground. Is that a sedan? It's a sedan. Okay. It feels like driving a go-kart when you drive a sedan, doesn't it? I incepted you. I put it in the dock. It feels like a go-kart. It really feels like a go-kart. I love, I miss, if I could drive a Honda Accord for the rest of my life, I would. That's I have, I have mixed feelings on cars. On the one hand, I know Morgan spoke about this a lot in his book and on his podcast, which by the way was awesome. Morgan House has a new podcast. On the one hand, I do like nice cars, but my knee-jerk reaction, I know this isn't fair. My knee-jerk reaction is to look at a guy in a nice car and be like, what a douche. Yes. But I still want a nice car, but I'm afraid of being perceived that way. See, I don't I want to be judged that way. I could never drive a convertible in a million years. I'm just not a convertible guy. Maybe talk about, ask me in 10 years when I'm going through a midlife crisis, but I'm an A to B guy. I respect that. I understand people who like cars and that's your thing. I'm fine with it. But from the Wall Street Journal, interesting. I've seen some of these things before. IRS released its income and tax stats for 2020. Top 1% of earners paid 42.3% of country's income taxes. It's a two decade high for the 1%, which is kind of surprising. I don't think you'd realize that. The top 5% of earners reported 38.1% of total AGI, but paid 62.7% of all income taxes. I'm saying taxes. we need to cut taxes for the rich. I agree. The bottom 50% of earners reported 10.2% of AGI, but paid 2.3% of all income taxes. I don't know what to do with this number, but this stuff is always interesting to me. So No, no, no. But this is important because it's complicated. It's not black or white, but rich people pay a lot of taxes. So don't quit your day job. It's dqydj.com. Huh? Uh, has... You ever heard that one before? Uh, Don't quit your day job. I've heard of it. It's a really cool website. I think it's done by a software guy. Forgive me, I can't remember his name. But he takes all the data from the Fed and breaks it down. So he did individual income percentiles 2022 versus 2021. And he breaks them down by median 75% or top 25%, top 10%, top 1%. What do you think the top 1% is to be in for income per year, to be in the top 1%? What do you have to make? 275. Okay, it's 400. 130,000 to be in the top 10% of incomes. 130? Again, this is 100% geographically skewed. Probably. Not skewed, I'm just saying like it matters where you are. The numbers change location to location. Okay, so let me ask you this. What's your number where it doesn't matter anymore? If you live in New York or San Francisco or Iowa. Income? Yes. Well, if you make a certain amount, you can't complain anymore because you're rich regardless of where you live. I know this is a very personal question. What's my number? Where what? Where you don't get to complain anymore that like, oh, I live, I make 200 grand a year, but I live in San Francisco and rent costs eight grand a uh, month. So I don't know what is it in San Francisco. New York, whatever. You think about it. 500? Okay. And you can't complain anymore? I don't know. Well, what would you That's say? That's fair. I think anyone that makes over $200,000 a year is rich or is well off. Wow. There are going to be some people that vehemently disagree with you. Well, I send my kids to private school in New York and okay. No, no, no. With $200,000 in New York, that's not rich in New York. All right, I'm going to come back prepared with some data next week. Okay. Wow, that's a take. Send your hate here. You couldn't get a $86 tequila every night. All right, we're running late. Let's move on because we've got some... There's like a lot of I quit drinking going on on the internet. Andreessen was doing it this week. But have you noticed that's become like a... There's like a movement. Is that the new VC thing? You're quitting drinking? It is a movement. I got to say... I love drinking. I do too. The one thing I've learned as an old person is that how much better it is to be in moderation... 
when I was younger, I was in college, you know, everyone binge drinking and like out of control probably. I've learned like, here's the perfect number of drinks to have in a night and feel okay and not feel like crap in a I've corner. gotten very good at that too. Most of the time I feel like crap is when I come hang out with you. And <laughs> credit to you though, last night you exited early. I was very tired. 10 p.m., maybe 9.30? I don't stay out late. I'm, an, I'm a night owl. But also, I reserve the right to change my mind. People are at different points, stages of their life. Maybe I stop drinking one day. Maybe not. But I don't think I ever will. People who do, I don't judge, but I enjoy. Sometimes I'm jealous of people who drink coffee. Like the way my wife, she has like her whole system. She goes to Starbucks. It's almost more about the whole process than it is about the drink itself. One of my biggest complaints with coffee, no one ever finishes a coffee. Have you ever seen a coffee cup that's empty? Sir. Every time I clean up coffee cups, there's this much left. I will say that's a good observation. There is often- No one ever finishes a cup of coffee. That part isn't true, but you're right. There are oftentimes- Back to the coffee thing, the process of, it's just like the routine, the thing of like just on a Friday night, the week's over, the weekend's here, sitting down, everyone's in bed, I'm having a drink. There's just something about that. It's not even like what the alcohol does to you. It's just like that relaxation You, you, you read it for the articles. <laughs> you, ever, you, you ever see the video of the comedian, Tom G, I forget his last name, talking about how much he loves drinking? He's like, I just love when a friend says, hey, you want to grab a drink? <laughs> no. Like, I just want to be healthy enough so that I can never stop drinking. Yeah. <laughs> Here you go. That's All right. So on the flight home from Phoenix, I was feeling fairly, I don't want to say severe tiredness. I don't know what severe is, but it, it was making me uncomfortable. My hands were getting sweaty. So I Googled, could turbulence take down an airplane? And I felt much better about it. I was quite nervous. Not only do airplanes almost never go down from turbulence, so there's really nothing to worry about, but I also found that, this is from the internet, so I don't know if it's true, we might soon be able to avoid turbulence altogether. Airlines are testing technology that can help airplanes avoid turbulence by using ultraviolet lasers to send pulses into the air ahead. Really? How cool is that? You don't think people are going to be like, I'm not riding on a laser machine? I'm all for it. That's kind of cool. Turbulence. No, I, yeah, I, honestly, turbulence doesn't really bother me for some reason. Maybe that's why I'm such a good investor, because I'm patient. I'm willing to ride out the turbulence. That was kind of not the brag, wasn't it? Anyway. Good for you. All right, let's skip this AI stuff. I'm going to set the stage for this. We're going to bring in Sean. Sean works with Ben and I at Red Holtz Wealth Management and the Advisors. He's our research analyst. And I was talking to Sean, I don't know, two weeks ago. Now, just a reminder for the audience, we're going to talk about movies. Sean said that The Departed was overrated. <laughs> You know, he said it didn't age well. It's not an old movie. And overrated. Sean's young. It's overrated. How old are you, Sean? How old are you? I just turned 25. No, the reason we asked this is because Sean said he thinks Black Mass was, was better, better than The Departed. Yeah, I'm sorry. And we said it was one of the worst movie takes we've ever heard in our life. <laughs> Freezing cold take. So last week or a couple of weeks ago, I said to Sean, hey, you ever seen Hereditary? And he goes, have I? It's in my top 10. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, listen, I like Hereditary as much as the next guy, but that is an egregious egregious take. So I said, you know what? If that's in your top 10, I got to know what else is in your top 10. So we invited Sean on to give us his top 10. So Sean, I turned the mic over to you. Hand up. <laughs> I thought long and hard about it. And that was a bad take. I'm going to stick with my black mass take because I think that's still a great take. I don't care. I don't care. That's the right take. Wait, what is the take on black mass? What is the black mass take that it's better than the departed? That in today's standards, the departed didn't age well. Therefore, it's better than Departed. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Go ahead. I think you guys brought me on here to make fun of my movie list, but this is a good movie list, and I'm bullish on it. I don't want to make fun. I'm just genuinely curious. It's not my intention to dunk on you. Okay, well, I mean, it's pretty cut and dry. So 10 is Spotlight. Let's go slow. So Spotlight Nine is, is Inglourious Bastards. I'm drawing a blank on his name. Yeah, I can't remember his name either. 
Mark Ruffalo. Mark it's Ruffalo. a tough rewatch, though. It's pretty when dark. When you think through the, the it's, it's dark. It, it's a, it's yeah. a well-done movie. It's a, a tough true, true story. True story. True story. True true story. I don't see any dunkable movies on here. No, there's no dunkable movies on here. Wait, you're looking at his list? I'm not looking at the list. I'm listening to Sean. Okay, he's got his list right it's here. It's in the doc. Okay, so nine, Inglorious Bastards. I don't think there's any discussions there. Great movie. One of my favorites as well. Silence of the Lambs, eight. Okay, not controversial. This one, this might piss Ben off a little bit. Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. I'm going to use your own argument against you. If you watch Star Wars now and the acting in it, I know it was such a pop cultural phenomenon. I couldn't believe how bad all the actors were besides Harrison Ford. It's really funny you mentioned that because Kobe was super into Star Wars at Disney. So when we got home this week, I said, do you want to watch Star Wars, the actual Star Wars with Darth Vader and C-3PO? So he said, yes. He got bored after 20 minutes. I feel like Star Wars is one of the movies that I've seen a billion times, but I haven't seen in 20 years. My reasoning is without Star Wars, you're not going to have the series like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You don't need to defend yourself. <laughs> Star Wars is Without The amazing. Departed, you don't get Black Mass. All right, keep going. Number seven. <laughs> We're actually at six. No Country okay. for Old Men. Overrated. No discussion there. Well, there's a discussion. <laughs> Whoa, overrated? <laughs> it's a fine movie. That's the Coen Brothers? I think so. I really like that movie. I hated the ending. Yeah, it's a good movie. That's a good movie. Well, it's the book, though. That's a book issue, isn't it? It's a good movie. I think it's only overrated because it is good, but it's not as good as most people say. But that's just my opinion. Keep going. Dark Knight at five. Okay. That might be a hot take. No, fair. No? Okay. Godfather at four. Duncan thought this was way, way too far back. No, that's... He thought it should be earlier well, than number four. Duncan's not on right now. This is Sean's show. That's fair. That's true. This is Sean's show, and Sean's show has The Wolf of Wall Street at three. Does that make you guys mad? I didn't love Wolf of Wall Street as much as most people. I'm not quite sure why, but people love that movie. Well, I just think Jordan Belfort's a scumbag, so that's why I didn't like it. Definitely. But I feel like it shows that he is a scumbag. Like, it's the classic Scorsese movie where everything's really good, and then everything is, like, completely awful. Yeah, Leo and Jonah Hill were incredible. So, all right, not a bad take. All right, two and one. Number two, There Will Be Blood. We were talking really about this one last night at dinner. You did? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's incredibly overrated. We literally spoke about this last night. I stuck up for it. I like it. I would never put it in my top whatever list. Okay. I like well, it. Well, okay. I understand people love that movie. All right. Number one. Number one, Goodfellas. It's just, it's unbelievable for me. It's there timeless. boy. I give you list. credit for putting this together. Sean, it would take me, I would be the guy in Always Sunny with the, the yarn, trying to put together a top 10 list, I could never do it because it would take me too long. Yeah. Good list. I have one more comment to make that is not movie related, and it's a prediction for this week. I think that Michael is going to get roasted in the comments this week. $80 <laughs> drinks. My kid has 30K. Wife drives an Addy. 200K is in a rich salary. You're done. You're done this week. That's a great <laughs> prediction. And that's all I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Duncan brought that up too. Wait a minute. I didn't say 200K was not a good salary. I think Michael just started sweating. <laughs> I did not. I did not. <laughs> you said you're going to complain. You said you complain at 200K. No, I didn't. Under 500K, you're complaining. No, I didn't. Ben said, when do you have the <laughs> right? Listen, $200,000 is a ton of money, but it's not rich. Okay. That's the it's best. It's a great income. Best prediction I've heard. All right. <laughs> bye, Sean. We got to do our okay, recommendations. Bye. I, I'm not ordering $86 <laughs> glasses of tequila. I'm getting upset. And wait a minute, why should I get roasted for contributing to my kids 529? <laughs> that was pretty good. All right, really quick, I want to do some recommendations of our own. Kudos to Sean putting his top 10 list. Well, guess what? If I get roasted, I won't know about it. I don't look at the comments that Duncan will tell me. I'll look for you. There's going to be a lot of Karen Badnicks in it. Can we just call this episode Karen Badnick? 
<laughs> I'm kidding. I pulled two stop losses on movies where I shut them off within the first 10 or 15 minutes. One was Your Place or Mine with Ashton Kutcher and Reese Witherspoon on Netflix. Just, it was bad. Never heard of it. It's a rom-com that came out on Netflix like three or four weeks ago. Babylon. I tried Babylon on Paramount+. Plus. Fantasy loves that movie. I just, I didn't see the point of it. And then we start put on a movie, Somebody I Used to Know on Amazon Prime. Dave Franco movie. He made it. His wife, Jay Ellis, the guy who's in Top Gun. It's not a great movie, but it's like a decent like 6.0 rom-com. It was actually pretty well done. It had some funny parts. It was like a best friend's wedding story, like updated a little bit. Not bad. One other one. My guilty pleasure show is You on Netflix. We just watched this first half of the fourth season. Oh, Robin loves that. It's so unrealistic, but it's another show that took a shot at billionaire people, young billionaire people and how out of touch they are. And it's so over the top, but it's very suspenseful. It's surprising in some ways, and it's actually still pretty good, four seasons in. Is Courtney watching Sex Life? I don't know what that one is. It's like, softcore porn is might be a bit too strong. I feel like a lot of the wives were watching that this weekend. I'll give one of my top 10 movies, another Coen Brothers movie. It was on this weekend. I saw a little bit of it. And I don't know if I could explain what I love so much about this movie. It's probably just very, it's just the writing and the acting. I think it's, it's just not overcomplicate things. Fargo. The movie Good Fargo one. is absolutely my top 10. I don't know if I could fill out my top 10, but that's there. All right. On the airplane. So I do work on the airplanes. Unless there's a movie that I have that's on my list that I haven't seen. I'm like, oh, this is a great opportunity to watch a movie. So I watched in the background, rewatched Top Gun, Maverick. Amazing. That, people are always watching that on planes, I noticed. Godfather 2, the original Rocky. It's slow. It's very slow. It's not what you think. It's, it's not like it, the other movies. It's very slow. 21 Jump Street is hilarious. I, like I that love that movie. I do too. 22 Jump Street is pretty funny too. I never saw 22, but I was thinking, am I running out of movies? I took a few flights and I haven't seen anything new. There aren't that many good movies coming out. That's why. I've not yet been to the theater to see Creed, but Creed smashed it at the box office. Kind of surprised me. I didn't watch past the first 58.6 million domestic opening. It's biggest opening weekend for a sports movie in film history. It's also the first sports movie ever to pass $100 million at the global box office in its opening weekend. That's shocking. I like the first one. I never saw the second one. Big I, fan. Big, okay. big fan. All right. There's a movie called This Is Where I Leave You. And it's kind of incredible how much power Netflix has. I saw it in the top 10. It was number one, I think. So This Is Where I Leave You is from 2014. Jason Bateman, Tina Fey, Adam Driver, and Corey Stoll, the bald guy from Billions. They're siblings. It's a great cast. Their mother is Jane Fonda. Some of the girlfriends slash wives are Rose Byrne, Connie Britton, who you know the face, Catherine Hahn. I don't know if that this is necessarily a good movie or how good it was, but this was a movie that spoke to me because I like it. It's about a Jewish family that sits Shiva. The four siblings are kind of nuts. Their dad dies. So there's Shiva, there's siblings, there's babies good involved. Family movie, there's, yeah. there's divorce, there's Mishagas. Timothy Oliphant is in it. Love him. Briefly. And I'm watching it. There's a part in a hockey rink, and I press pause. I'm like, wait a minute. Is that my town? It was shot in my town. Oh, really? That hockey rink is Newbridge in Belmore. I've seen that movie before. I think I might even mention on the pod. I'm I think it's fan. worth watching. Okay. Am I out of touch, Ben? <laughs> Sean has you worried. We'll see in the comments. We'll let the audience decide. All right. Animal Spirits Pod at gmail.com, and we will see you next time.